little doubt that we are a nation of individualists. I don't need to spend a single moment trying to convince you of that fact. It's, it's a, a truism that has almost become cliched because it is so true. And yet for all of our individualism, all of our desire to, to just be me, you know, to do it, to do it my way, to be, to, be, to be unique, for all of our individualism, we as a nation also are fairly obsessed with the idea, with, with the reality, the need for role models. Right, from sports stars, which we hold up as role models, to, to mentors in the business world, which is really all the craze these days, to, to movies like Lean on Me or Stand and Deliver, we understand, as, as a people, culturally, we understand the power and the importance of an inspiring example. Now, that's deeply ironic, I mean, the irony is not just the oxymoron of individualists that want role models. Okay, think about that for a minute. Individualists who need role models. It's not just that. It's that the point of a role model is their ability to personify qualities that are not idiosyncratic, but rather qualities that are universally desirable. In other words, role models don't help me be me. Role models are all about helping me be better than me, at least better than the me that I could get to left to myself. This is the point of an exemplary life. They rouse us from our own individualistic mediocrity to aspire to something much, much better. Now, this summer, we're thinking about our life together here in the local church, and we're using Paul's letter to Titus. And what we're going to see really over the next two weeks is that role models are at the, the very heart of Paul's plan for the church. Because it's the power of exemplary lives, according to Paul, that will both defend and commend the truth of the gospel. It is the power of exemplary lives that both defend and commend the truth of the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1858, 1858, Titus chapter 2. It's easy to miss because it's so short. I'm going to read uh, the, the first five verses. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect. Self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. That's it. Those are the five verses we're going to look at this morning. Now, uh, what I 
what I wish we could do is take time to just read the whole chapter, because chapter 2 stands, the entire chapter stands as a single unit of thoughts. It, it begins there in verse 1 with, with uh, Paul instructing Titus to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Flip, flip to the end of the chapter, verse 15, he rounds it off. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. In the very middle of the chapter, he tells Titus in verse 7, you can look at verse 7, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. I think that verse, verse 7, in some ways, really captures the point of the entire chapter, all of Titus 2. If I could sum up Titus 2, it would be simply this, sound doctrine should produce exemplary lives. Sound doctrine should produce exemplary lives. Lives worthy of being imitated. Now, as the chapter proceeds, Paul's going to work that idea out in two different directions. He's going to work it out internally. What does this mean for our life together in the church? And then he's also going to work it out externally. What does this mean for our, our witness to the world? Why, why should, why should non-Christians care about this? Now, our verses this morning are, are focusing on the internal applications for our life together as a, as a community. So if I could sum up just those five verses, if I've given you kind of the point of the whole chapter, now I want to sum up the point of just these five verses that we're looking at this morning. I, I would put it into a sentence, and it's kind of long, so I'm going to repeat it. But, but here's the point of verses 1 to 5. Our lives should correspond to the gospel so that we can encourage one another and then together protect the reputation of God's word. I'm going to say it again. Our lives should correspond to the gospel so that we can encourage one another and then together protect the reputation of God's word. What I want to do is unpack that sentence by unpacking these five verses for you. All right, so first, our lives should correspond to the gospel. Now, just to prepare you as listeners, almost the entire sermon is in this first point. It's got four sub-points, roughly. So don't give up. We're going to be in this first point for a while. But it's going to break up real nicely for you. You're going to be able to follow. And then don't despair. Because when we get to point two and point three, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time. All right? So just settle in for point one now. I've, I've warned you. Our lives should correspond to the gospel. Th- this is the basic point of verse one. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. He, he is to teach what is in accord. That is, what is fitting. What, what is appropriate to gospel truth. We've seen already in chapter one that sound doctrine is the gospel. And as we read through all of these following verses, even beyond verse 5, uh, into what really next week's sermon, what we're going to see is that Paul doesn't have in mind other doctrines. When he says you need to teach was in accord with sound doctrine, he's not saying you need to teach some other doctrines that are in accord with sound doctrine. No, when we walk through the rest of these verses, what we see is what he has in mind is, is, is the way we live. You need to teach people how to live in accord with sound doctrine. Now, he breaks it up into various demographic groups. He's going to talk to older men. He's going to talk to older women. He's going to talk to younger women. And as we'll see next week, 
he's going to talk to younger men and to slaves. Now, there are some unique instructions for each group, but there's also a lot of overlap. Bottom line, regardless of which demographic group you fit into, our lives should correspond to the truth of the gospel. Now, that right away has an implication for us. Doctrine, sound teaching, the, the, the truth of the gospel, theology, it, it cannot merely be a set of internal beliefs or intellectual positions that we hold. Because, because Christianity is far more than a set of personal hopes or historical facts. Christianity, sound doctrine, actually, it has to do with capital T truth claims that we actually trust in. So, so let me illustrate the, the difference here. Right? I, there's a big difference between saying, I believe the Spurs are going to win the NBA championship next year. I believe it. That's a personal hope of mine. Right? That's just a personal hope. I mean, I, I believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping in it. I love the Spurs. Didn't happen this year. Next year. All right? Personal hope. But that's a different kind of statement than, than me saying, I believe that Charlie Hales is mayor of Portland. That's a fact. I can like the fact. I can dislike the fact. But it's just a fact. And then an entirely different kind of statement. I believe that this platform right here is going to hold my weight and keep me from falling down into the basement. Right? Now. That's a very different kind of belief, as I just demonstrated. I hoped it was true. I, I, have, I have good reason to believe that it was true based on the facts of what I know about, you know, construction and the materials used to make this, this platform. But what really sets that statement apart from the other kinds of statements was I am clearly, even at this moment, putting my trust in it. I am depending on this platform to keep me here rather than in the basement. All right? The gospel is a set of facts. But those facts are not mere facts. The gospel are facts that claim our active trust and therefore necessarily must change our lives, the, the, the way that we live. The good news of the gospel is, is that God became man, was born of the Virgin Mary, and then lived a life that was perfectly in accord with the truth of all that God is. Jesus Christ lived a, a, a life that, actually, as we read through Titus 2, 1 to 5, I mean, this, this would have, except for about, you know, loving your husband bit, I mean, all of this would have described him. He lived a perfect life in accord with the truth of who God is. But what's good about that is that he didn't do it for himself. What's good about that is that he did it for us. He, he took that life and then offered it as a sacrifice on the cross for people like you and me who have not led lives in accord with the truth of who God is. We, we've gone off and led very different kinds of lives. 
we've led lives that actually don't look very much like these five verses. And because of that, we have each of us earned God's displeasure, God's wrath. But Jesus Christ took his perfect life and he offered it on the cross as a substitute for people like us. And to prove that God accepted that substitute, after Jesus died on the cross, after he was buried, three days later, God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead because sin and death had no claim on him. There was no reason Jesus should have died. Jesus simply voluntarily died so that he could take our place, so that he could love us in this way as our Savior. And having done this for us, for everyone who puts their trust in him the same way that I'm putting my trust in this platform, not just believing it as a fact, but actually beginning to depend upon it, to to bank on it, to begin to live your life in light of its truth. For all of those people, Jesus promises that we'll be forgiven, that we'll be adopted into God's family, that we will spend an eternity in heaven with God the Father. That's good news. But it is good news for people who actually trust in it, who actually depend upon it. It's not very good news for people who, who maybe think about Jesus the same way I think about Charlie Hales as mayor. Yeah, it's true. Doesn't impact my life very much. No, it, th- this is good news for people who trust in the truth. So if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I would love to talk to you more. I've, I've just explained it very quickly and very briefly But I would love to talk to you more about what it would look like for you to explore the truth of the facts that I just laid out and then to actually trust in them, to turn away from all the other things that you've been trusting in and instead to trust in Jesus. I'm going to be standing at the door at the back. Uh, My my phone number is on the back of the bulletin. Uh, Whatever way that you'd like to reach me, I would love to talk to you about this. But, But of course, you don't have to talk to me. You could talk to the person that you came with or you could. Talk to no one, and you could just start talking to God right now. And you could begin to to ask him to show you what does it mean to trust in him and to help you to repent of your former way of life and to begin to follow him today. Now, I said that to people who know that they are not Christians. But if you're here this morning, And you think of yourself as a Christian. You say you believe in the gospel. But your life doesn't reflect that belief. I want to encourage you to reconsider who you are. I want you to go back and ask yourself, what is it that you really believe? Because really believing the gospel changes your life. Well, what does that life look like? What does a life that corresponds to the gospel look like? Well, in a nutshell, if I could kind of summarize all of the words that are in those five verses, all the different characters that Paul highlights, in a nutshell, it is a respectable life. Now, I know I've I've moved out west, and this is like the land of 
you know, I did it my way, individualist. So I just want to be really clear. I said respectable, not conventional. I, I didn't say it looks like a conventional life. You might be leading a very unconventional life in all sorts of ways. That's, that's fine. I'm not really talking about that. But, w- but when we look at what Paul's talking about here, he's talking about a life that is worthy of respect. I mean, just, just think about some of the words here. Uh, a life, verse 3, that, that is reverent. The, the idea there is that the, the, that person is living a life that, that fits a holy person. A life that is dignified. That's really the idea that's behind worthy of respect. A life that's worthy of being imitated. A life that is, that is prudent. We see that in several places. He, Paul uses different words. Temperate and, and self-controlled. That, that is a life that thinks before it acts. And when it acts, always acts in accord with the truth. A life that's characterized there, there in verse 2. By, by faith, by love, by endurance. Or, or, or there in verse 5, by, by kindness, rather than self-indulgence, malicious gossip, slander. In other words, a, a, a life that is very much concerned for others, rather than a life that, that is all about itself. When you put it all together, this is a... A respectable life, a, a life that others have no reason to speak against. That's what the gospel should be producing in us. Now, now all of that, though, I recognize and, and laying that out, looking at some of the different words there, that it's just a bunch of abstract words. How do we begin to make this life that's transformed by the gospel more concrete? Well, this is where I think some of the distinct instructions for each group begin to help us. So let's start with the older men. And I just want to point out, Paul never says how old you have to be to be an older man or an older woman. It is clearly, in his mind, a somewhat fluid category. So, and I'm going to remind you of this again later in the sermon, you know, all of us are older than someone here. Except for one. There's, there's, there, you know, there's just one person who is the oldest, and there's just one person who's the youngest. So all of us are older than somebody. All of us are younger than somebody. All right? So older men. Paul says right there in verse 2, we should be worthy of respect. Now, I, I think that should immediately grab your attention as men, right? Because respect is something that all of us want as men. It is, it is hardwired into us. Respect is something that we want. But, you know, respect is funny. It's not something you can ever demand. Respect, sort of like manhood itself, is something that has to be conferred on you. We we grow up to be adult males, right? But to be considered a man, other men have to confer that upon you. It's kind of the same with respect, right? You want it, but it has to be given by others. But because we want it, we're always seeking it, right? We're we're always going after it as men. So so what kind of respect, men, are you after this morning? Is is it the respect that that is conferred on men because they've, they've gained a lot of wealth? Is it fundamentally the respect that's conferred on men because they've been very successful in their careers? 
Is it the respect uh, that's conferred on men because of their physical prowess? You know, you're, you're really athletic, you're strong, you're fit. Is it, is it the respect that, that so many in our culture respect, which is, which, which is that of sexual conquest? You know, you're, you're, you're a ladies' man. Paul says that we should aspire to respect because of our faith, because of our love, and because of our endurance in suffering. That's what he points out there at the end of verse 2. Sound in faith, in love, and in endurance, which, which is the idea of, of hold standing fast in the midst of trials. How do you get that kind of respect? How, how do you get there? Well, brothers, it doesn't come quickly and it doesn't come easily. Th- that kind of respect is built up over time as it's demonstrated in a long obedience in the same direction. A life that through the various trials and the various seasons continues on in faith and in love and endurance. This, of course, is why self-control is so important. And, and Paul, uh, Paul talks about self-control several times in this passage. And he talks about it with older men. The gospel teaches me what my true long-term interests are. The gospel reminds me that my long-term interests are not in the the present-day circumstances of this life, but that my long-term interests have everything to do with God. And so so self-control, or or another way of talking about it, prudence is produced by the gospel. Because prudence is essentially the art of, of making decisions in light of eternity. Making decisions with wisdom. You know, I, I think as older men, it is very, very easy to begin to get kind of crabby and crotchety and unhappy with everything and critical of all the change. Honestly, a little, a little envious as we get older of youth. A little frustrated that, that life is just now passing us by faster and faster than we can go. You know, Paul gives us a very different vision. A vision of an older man's life that accords with the gospel. Not of men who are, who are trying to hang on to power and, and, and doing that and, and to do that. They're, they're being critical of everybody else. No, but, but men who, who desire more than anything else to be known as immovable models of faith. Steadfast models of faith for the younger men who are moving really fast and who are beginning to take the reins of power from us. That's the image that Paul gives. And the gospel does this for us. Because the gospel reminds me, as a man, that it's, it's not about my control of things here and now. But it's about my long-term interests. My faith, my hope, my endurance. Because I'm heading to heaven. What about older women? Older women, what does it look like for you to, to conduct yourself in a way that is, 
that is reverent, that is, that is fitting for a holy person. This is a word that's actually typically used in the, in the secular world of priestesses. Holy priestesses serving in some pagan temple. Well, they were expected to be holy. Paul grabs the word and he says, older women, this is what you should be like. You should be women who, who live lives that obviously mark you out as, as holy people. What does that look like? I think it's interesting that for the older women, Paul particularly warns against slander. Don't be slanderers. That is malicious gossips. The word that he uses right there that, that our NIVs translate as slanderers is actually devils. Older women, don't be devils. Why does, why does he do that? Well, well that, that, we, say, we say devil, but the, but the word actually means slanderer. And this is what Satan does. This is what the devil does. He is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, we, we see this throughout Scripture. He, he stands before God and he stands before our own consciences. And he is constantly seeking to tear down our character and our reputation to ourselves and to the Lord. This is what all slanderers do. This is what malicious gossips do. They tear down rather than build up. They assassinate people rather than love them. And they do it all with words. Now, why would Paul think that older women are particularly prone to being little devils in the midst of the congregation? Could it be that the root of that for an older woman is sometimes disappointment in your own life. Disappointment that has built up over time and that has never been dealt with in the gospel. Could the root of your gossip be, be envy at the lives of others, even, even the youth of others? Could it be that, that the root of slander in, in your life is anger. Anger that life didn't turn out the way you wanted, and you've got to be older to figure that out. But you finally have figured it out, and it hasn't turned out the way you wanted. And, 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 and so your response is, is to stand in judgment on the lives of others. You know, the gospel reminds us that all of us are saved by grace, every single last one of us. All of us have, have received mercy from Jesus Christ, which we didn't deserve. That truth, when it's understood, when it's believed, when it's taken down into the heart, that truth that we all need mercy, that we're all saved by grace, should change slanderers into those who teach, who literally speak now what is good rather than speaking what is evil of others. The gospel frees us from bitterness. It frees us from envy. It, it frees us from anger at ourselves and the way our lives have turned out. Because God will judge someday, I don't have to stand in judgment over other people in the congregation. And because God is sovereign and good and he's proved it at the cross, then I can trust God that he gave me the life he gave me. With all of its disappointments, 
with all of its trials. I can trust him that he gave me that life for my good. And then I can turn and teach others likewise. The gospel transforms older women from, from little devils right, to those who speak what is good and build others up. Both older men and older women are told to be sober, temperate, not enslaved to much wine. Now, I found that curious because in our culture, we think of drunkenness typically as a, as a young person's problem, right? So, but, but Paul actually specifically associates it with older men and women. Now, perhaps that was a particular problem among the aged in his day before the invention of painkillers, right? I, I can imagine that. But I think perhaps there is more to it than that. You don't have to be that old. I mean, by the time middle age rolls around, there is more than enough emotional pain in our lives that some of us are going to be tempted to begin to drown that pain in a bottle. And if we're not using a bottle, well, there are a lot of other painkillers that, that come easy to hand. Entertainment. Shopping. Food, work, the grandchildren, vacations, trips. The list goes on and on. You you don't have to reach for alcohol or for illegal drugs to find something to drown your pain in. Now, none of those things that I just listed are are bad things in in and of themselves. But when we begin to turn to those sorts of things to to assuage our disappointments and our pain, when we become drunk on anything other than God, then then we turn that thing into an idol. But friends, that's not a life that's in accord with the gospel. That's not a life that the gospel produces because the gospel teaches us that God alone is big enough for our sorrows. We were made in the image of God. We were made for so much more than this. It's why it hurts so bad. And there's no place to go to deal with that pain other than the Lord. Friends, everything else just gets us drunk. Everything else just distracts us. Everything else just numbs and deadens. But in the gospel, God reminds us That he is with us in our pain. He meets us there in our pain. And then he reminds us that pain is not the final word on our lives. This world is not our home. This life is not the end. And so rather than needing to escape the pain of a fallen world, the gospel allows me to live by faith and allow God to redeem the pain that I'm experiencing. You know what I'm talking about. I feel like this is something that, that Adrian and I have been going through. As, as we've dealt with the pain of Michael's illness. And as we've shared just a little bit about that. And it is painful. What has God done? Well, he's, he's, he's opened it up in your lives. He, he's, he's allowed 
are seeking to walk through this pain faithfully to be an encouragement to you as you seek to walk through your pain faithfully. Well, the details are different. But our God is the same. And He is sufficient. And so we don't need the bottle or the bottle substitutes because the gospel changes us. Young women. That's the other group that he talks to here. What does this look like for you to live a life that's in accord with the gospel? Well, in his cultural context, Paul could assume marriage and children. Marriages were all arranged. So, you know, it wasn't up to you anyway. Mom and dad would take care of it. There was no birth control. So he could just assume marriage and children. So a gospel life in that cultural context was clearly a life devoted to loving this husband that you probably didn't pick and loving your children. Being faithful and chaste. That's that's that language there is self-controlled and pure. You, you can imagine it in a context where you didn't get to pick the husband, the, the, the temptation to to affairs was great. Paul encourages faithfulness, purity, to be kind, to to be devoted to the home, busy at home, and finally trusting your husband's leadership and authority. Those are the things that he highlights for that particular cultural context. Now, because our cultural context is so different, for so many women, these verses raise a lot of questions. And I just really don't have time to answer them all. So I'm going to give you short answers to four that I have a feeling are on your mind. First, do you have to get married? No, you don't have to get married. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. But the scriptures do assume that marriage is the normal lot for most of us. Because to remain unmarried, God's going to need to give you special gifts and grace. Okay? So you don't have to get married, but I think most of us normally should expect to get married. Second, do you have to have children? No. Of course, many people want to have children and can't have them. But I think the important question to ask in terms of being devoted to your children here is not, do I have to have children? But but to recognize, young married woman, that Throughout the scriptures, barrenness is a result of the curse. Barrenness is is a fact of life in a fallen world. So if you're able to have children, my question for you would be, why would you want to shape your life according to the curse rather than according to God's blessing? Third question. Do you have to be a homemaker? You know, he says, busy at home there. Do you have to be a homemaker? No, you don't. When when we look at the breadth of Scripture's teaching on the economic labor of women, we realize it's, it's pretty complex. They're working inside the home. They're working outside the home. They're working for money. Sometimes they're working not for money. It's a pretty complex picture that the Bible paints. But what the Bible is also extremely clear on is whether you work outside the home or solely inside the home. The Bible understands that, a, that as a wife and as a mother, you have particular and unique responsibilities in the home. And you need to devote yourselves to them. 
And if a career gets in the way of those duties to husband and children, if, if a career prevents you from being able to love your husband and children as you ought, then despite what our culture says, the career needs to take a back seat. There's a lot more that I could say about that one. Feel free to follow up with me at, at the door. Fourth question. Do you have to obey your husband? Yes. But with an asterisk. All right? So, so yes. God has established an authority structure in the home. Just as he's established an authority structure in the church. Just as he's established authority in civil society. We could go to Genesis chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 5 where both of those ideas get worked out at much greater length. But a couple of things that we need to keep in mind, because this is difficult for many women today. First, the presence of authority and submission to that authority is not the absence of dignity and equality. I consider myself every bit the equal of President Obama. But there's no question he has authority that I don't have, and I have to submit to that authority. My submitting to it and him having it doesn't in any way touch on his dignity or mine or my equality with him. So it is in the Trinity itself. Jesus Christ is equal in every respect to the Father. He is very God of very God. We've confessed this in our church services. And yet Jesus Christ, who is God, submits himself to the will of the Father. There is an authority structure inside the Trinity that in no way touches on the dignity or the equality of Jesus Christ. So it is in the home. God has established an authority structure. Husbands have been called to, to lead. And wives have been called to follow that leadership, to, to submit to it. But here's the asterisk. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that husbands are allowed to demand their wives' submission. It's always something that is voluntarily given. So, young married men... Your job is to be precisely the kind of guy that your wife really wants to follow and submit to. Your job is to be the kind of man that will cause your wife to begin to feel like independence would be a burden. And submission is a real joy and freedom. Young wives, your calling is to voluntarily give that submission. To trust and follow your husband. Even as Jesus Christ Trust and follow his father. But then the rest of the asterisk is this. Never, ever to the disobedience of God. Young women, your, your ultimate loyalty is to God. And if submitting to your husband means disobe- disobeying God, then you obey God and you disobey your husband. All right, those are, those are my four quick answers to four really kind of big questions. Feel free to follow up with me. What I really want to focus on, though, is that little phrase, be kind. Be kind. It goes along with love. There's, there, 
there's no one, I'm sure, young married women, there is no one you love more than your husband and your children if you have them. But isn't it the truth that there's no one who can hurt you more than your husband? And there's no one who can get under your skin quite like your own children? To be kind to people like that, to be kind to someone who has hurt you more than anybody else in the world, to be kind to little people who get under your skin seemingly on purpose and with with great frequency, I, I think that speaks worlds about what it means to live a life that's in accord with the gospel. Because the gospel teaches us that God has been kind to us. And our sin against God has been far more of an offense to him than we can even imagine. And I don't even want to begin to speak about how annoying we must seem to him at times, right? But he is always kind to us, even and especially when we don't deserve it. A life that understands that, a life that understands I have received kindness when I didn't deserve it, is a life that's changed. A life that fits the gospel now doesn't need to retaliate against the person who's hurt me. Doesn't need to become impatient of the people that are annoying me. But is now free to extend kindness to those who do not deserve it. Because I, who do not deserve it, have also received kindness. This is what the gospel does. Is there anything here for young women who aren't married? Yes, lots. Love of others, self-control, purity, kindness, Industry, these aren't things you learn once you get married. No, it starts now, young unmarried women. If it doesn't start now, it won't be there later when you need it. And, and again, as, as if you're wondering, well, well, where am I on this line? Am I younger or older? The, the answer is surely yes. And, and, and so this applies to you, okay? Y- young men, you're mainly next week, but... You're going to be an older man someday. So everything that I said to older men should be something that you're aspiring to and working toward now. If we truly believe that the gospel is true, it should change our lives. Our lives should correspond to the gospel. So that second, and we're going to move much faster now. Second, we can encourage others. Verse 4. Then they can train the younger women. Then they can train the younger women. That word then is really better translated so that. A better way to to, to read that whole part of the sentence would be, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to to, to much wine, but to teach what is good so that they can train the younger women. The purpose of our godly, respectable, gospel corresponding lives is not so that we can feel good about ourselves. The purpose of having lives that correspond to the gospel is so that we can encourage other people to have lives that correspond to the gospel as well. Paul makes this explicit in the relationship between older women and younger women. It is implicit in the relationship between older men and younger men. And he makes it explicit when he talks to Titus himself. Titus, you should set them an example. Now, that word train there, then so that they can train the younger women. 
uh, don't, don't think like a training course that you took at work to give you some sort of skill. The, the word train there is actually a, a verb that's related to a noun that's shown up several times in our passage already, and that's, that's the noun self-control. If I could have my own personal translation of this verb, wouldn't be so much train. It would rather be advise someone in the art of living. It's to advise or encourage someone in wisdom. And what that tells us is that the training that the older are to do for the younger isn't something in some esoteric topic that you're going to have to go to school on or get some big fat book and read up on so you can teach somebody else about it. No, what that verb is telling us is that the training that we're doing, the the training that we're giving others is in stuff that we already know. it's, It's a training that should be flowing out of our own godly lives given to somebody else so that they can learn from our life and and, and grow in godliness and respectability as well. You've heard me talk a lot about discipleship, about one person taking another person along and and deliberately helping them grow in their Christian life. Friends, this is what it looks like. This is one of the classic texts that make it clear this is what we should do. It doesn't look like me or Todd Miles or Jan Verbruggen giving a theology lecture. It doesn't look like Ron Mars or Jeff Chang running some sort of workshop. It simply looks like you, in all the grace that God has given you, sharing your life with another person in a deliberate effort to encourage them in what you already know and what they need to know. Which means... You don't have to have been discipled in order to disciple somebody else. I hear this a lot. I couldn't disciple somebody. Nobody's ever discipled me. Well, you're living, aren't you? You're you're following Christ, aren't you? He's taught you a few things along the way, hasn't he? Go share that with somebody. Let somebody else benefit from what Christ has done in your life. Now, it's easy in a church like this to get trapped in our own age and stage groups so that older and younger never really come into contact with each other. Our Sunday school classes are largely set up this way. To some extent, even our small groups, we're constantly surrounded with people who are just like us and, and largely at the, at the same stage, you know, in, in spiritual growth. Now, when that happens, it doesn't mean that we don't train younger Christians. I think for most of us, what it means is that the only younger Christians that we're training are people in our own biological and extended families. And that's a great thing to do, but it entirely defeats the purpose of what Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about the nuclear family. He's talking about the church family and the way older Christians in the church need to disciple younger Christians in the church. So so older men and, and, and older women, and as, as I'll say it again, that's a very relative and fluid category. Are you taking your life and using it to encourage others in their lives? Are are, are you taking your life to the extent that it corresponds to the gospel and using it to help somebody else grow so that their life corresponds to the gospel? Paul does not see this as optional. It's the point of your own personal discipleship. The point of you growing in grace and godliness isn't for you. It's for him or her. 
the person that you're going to help along out of the resources and riches that God has already given you. Now, now, now what does that look like? Well, let me, let me just help you by saying start by picking one person. Don't try to disciple everybody, and don't try to disciple vaguely and generally. Pick a person, and then pursue them. Invite them out for coffee or lunch. Invite them over to your house for a meal. Begin to get to know them. Build a relationship. Now, I'm not saying you have to become best friends with them. You can disciple somebody without becoming their closest confidant and best friend. But you do have to be deliberate, and you should be creative. You could read a book together. We've got some great books on the bookstall that are designed for two people to read together and get together once a week and talk about the chapter you read the week before. You could go fishing together. And instead of just talking about the weather and the fish, you could ask each other questions about your marriage, about your work, about, about your life. Just be deliberate and then begin to share out of your own life. Uh, when I was in D.C., I had a running group. And we would run at 6 a.m. Uh, three or four days a week. And we would talk. And, and that, was, that was basically a discipleship group for me. Uh, other things that I did, I mean, I would read books with guys, but my family likes to camp. So we would invite another family to go camping with us and just watch us and we, as, as we lived out our family's life together. And then we'd talk about it. We'd have people over for dinner. I mean, there, there are lots of opportunities. You probably have some hobby that, that you could share with somebody. And over sharing that hobby, you could talk about spiritual things. What it takes is deliberate intentionality. That's all it takes. And honestly, deliberate intentionality is just another word for love. What happens when we do this? What happens when we not only grow in our own godliness, but we use our lives to encourage others to grow as well? Well, what happens is third, together we protect the reputation of God's word. Look there at the end of verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. So that no one will malign the word of God. And of course what he's talking about there is because of our behavior. So that no one will malign the word of God because of our behavior. Now, I know it, it, it looks like, because of where it comes in the sentence, that he's just talking about wives, young women. You need to be this way so that no one will malign the word of God. But, but in fact, verses 2 to 5 are just one long sentence. Actually, they're part of one even longer sentence. When we live this way together, people may still reject Christianity. People may still hate Christianity, but when we live this way together, they'll reject and hate Christianity for their own reasons. It won't be because we've given them a good reason. When someone becomes a Christian, the result of the gospel should, that they, should be that they become this kind of person. They should become a better person, not a worse person, a more godly person, not a less godly person. That should be evident to the world as well as evident here inside the church. In that sense, our lives, individually, but even more so collectively, are, are like a big billboard, a billboard for the gospel. Are we living in such a way that people think poorly of Christ and his gospel? 
or well of Christ and his gospel. That's what Paul's getting at here at the end of verse 5. In Paul's own day, what would have led people to think poorly of, of God's message was Christians who were immoral. Or, or, or Christians who didn't respect authority. Or, or Christians who destroyed family structures. These are the sorts of issues that he focuses on in these verses. Now, I've got to ask, is it any different today? If being a Christian causes us to love and respect our non-Christian families less, well, why should they think well of Christianity? If being a Christian means that you're no different morally than the people around us, then why should they pay any attention to our message? If being a Christian means disengaging from the world rather than being a man or a woman worthy of respect in the larger community, then why would anyone think this is a good thing? We're going to spend all of next week's sermon on this point because Paul picks it up here and he keeps pressing it. But this is the point of our exemplary model lives. Not that people would think well of us. Not that people would even particularly think well of Henson. But the people could not help but think well of the gospel. It's not enough for just one or two of us to do this. It's not enough if just a few of us look like this. We're in this together. We've all put on the same team jersey. And for better or worse, our message is evaluated by the character of the team as a whole. Therefore, brothers and sisters here at Henson, let's give ourselves to this. Let's give ourselves to one another in love, encouraging each other to live exemplary lives that are transformed by the gospel so that the world cannot help but take notice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that your spirit would be at work in us. We pray that we would not be believers in the gospel in word only, but that it would be evident that we are standing on it, that we're jumping up and down on it, that we are trusting in it wholly, and that that would therefore change our lives so that we live in such a way that others are built up and the world notices that the gospel matters. The gospel changes things. The gospel, therefore, must be true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.